Okay, so let's talk a little bit about this notion of restorative culture. Because this is kind of an interesting concept that's really important. But I'm not sure we've done a really good and effective job in giving it the underpinnings, the foundation that makes the conversation make sense. Hey, everybody, Todd Conklin, Pre-Accident Investigation Safety Podcast. How are you? Well, I hope you're good because we're screaming along. It's the weirdest thing about time. It just continually happens. Now, it's a uh, construct. It's made up. I don't want to get too deep on this. It's not real. I mean, we give it a value. And it's really interesting because time's hard to talk about. It's, it's in fact, I remember in grad school, we had giant discussions about this because that's what you do in grad school because I don't know why. It seems valuable. But time, time is a nonverbal agenda. So it's really difficult to describe how long an hour is. But it's pretty easy to show what an hour is. So it's hard to talk about five minutes and not show the incremental metrics we use to measure five minutes. It's the difference between things that take a long time perceptually and things that move really fast perceptually. So if you read, and if you haven't read this, you should. It's a book by a guy named Joseph Heller. It's called Catch-22. It's a classic. It's a very interesting book, pretty timely right now. And when Heller wrote Catch-22, his main character, who was named Yossarian, he talked a lot about how he liked to peel potatoes when he was in the Army. And the reason he liked to peel potatoes is not because peeling potatoes was fun. I'm relatively certain that's not true. But because when he was peeling potatoes... Time slowed down, and his life actually was longer when he was peeling potatoes than when he was having fun. That's a pretty important part of uh, what we think about when we think about this notion of time. Now, this podcast isn't on time. We could spend lots of our energy talking about time, and we'd still end up with the fact that it's it's a nonverbal agenda. You can't really talk about it, and that it's a construct. But it's a big one, and we use it, and it just marches forward, constantly, unrelentlessly marches forward. So my advice is do the best you can. Make good things happen. Be the person you always wanted to be and peel more potatoes because that will make your life last longer. But that's not what we're going to talk about today. You you heard it in the teaser. Today we're going to talk about this idea of restorative culture. And to get into that restorative culture conversation, well, one of the things we ought to do is just start it, I guess. So if you remember when this journey kind of started to this new view, the safety differently view, it started with a guy named Jim Reason. And Jim Reason really looked at and talked about the four pillars that existed to create safety. And we can talk about these four pillars. One of them, one of the pillars was this pillar of just culture. And so just culture has been a term that's been around a while. I mean, 30 plus years, 
since when Jim Reason sort of introduced the idea. And what's interesting is it became sort of a, uh, a magic bullet, this just culture idea. And lots of people, friends of ours for sure, have written on it and thought about it. Like, in fact, Sidney Decker had an entire book and spent much time talking about the notion of a just culture. And if you remember kind of the backstory, a just culture is a culture that, to a great extent, doesn't focus on blame, but really focuses on providing the right response for the right local rationale. So why did the person do what they did? Once you understand that question, then it helps you move forward. And Reason really thought about this a lot. And he did something called the the reasonable person clause, where he said, would 10 other likely workers have done the same things given the same set of circumstances that the workers face in the same context. And what he was looking for was a way to be fair and equitable and to really understand the contextual nature of the event and to speak of it in a just way. Now, it was a pretty important idea. And it was important because it sort of set the stage for all of us, that's you and I, I mean, that's who we're talking about now, to kind of think about these problems and move forward. Unfortunately, it was so attractive that it became kind of an algorithm. And you saw lots of just culture matrices, and you saw lots of just culture softwares, believe it or not, because they were out there, companies that would sell just culture. And then some industries grabbed just culture and ran with it. I'm talking to you, healthcare, just in case you're not listening. And they just zoomed ahead. And what's interesting is that, in fact, what just culture introduced philosophically was not terribly valuable in a sustainable way in an algorithm. You, you really didn't need a just culture algorithm because once you sort of figured out that you wanted to understand the context, that sort of changed the way you thought, which changed the questions you asked, which changed the way you learned, which changed investigations, which I think is what Reason wanted. That's one of the four pillars, but it became very, very, very it was almost kind of like the silver bullet. It became very, very appealing to companies and lots of organizations, maybe yours, hardwired just culture matrices into their HR plans and they built matrices and they ran them out and this was the way we're going to solve problems because it makes a complex world much simpler and we can move forward just by following this little, this tree, this, this just culture matrix, this just culture tree. Now, the reason this is important for us is because I actually think now that we're smarter and we've thought about this problem longer, that that just culture phase of understanding safety in a different way was just that. It was a phase. It was a developmental step. You must crawl before you walk kind of thing that kind of led us into a much different direction. And one of the issues with just culture is it assumes the nature of unjust culture. And I'm not sure organizations purposely, I mean, maybe sociopathic organizations, but most organizations don't really 
start out from an unjust place. And so we were sort of using a, a, a square peg in a round hole and force-fitting it and seeing it as kind of the answer. What it also did is I think it moved us away because just was such an important word. It moved us away from the notion of a restorative culture. And that actually, I think, is much more interesting. And restoration really takes place, well, part of where the origin of, of a restorative culture comes from is the response that South Africa had post-apartheid. And restorative cultures are basically driven around three questions. Who's been hurt? What do they need? And who's responsible to ensure they get it? Now, that's a really important piece of data I just gave you, but it doesn't work all on its own. So to kind of set the stage for this discussion, because I think it's an important discussion to have, it's one I've been thinking about a bunch, I want to actually use a, a piece of information that I think is quite important that comes really from the counseling and family therapy side of the house. And, and, and it says something that I think is helpful to us. Here's what they say. Human beings generally trade trauma for wisdom. So the bad things that happen in your life make you smarter. And because we generally have learned, and it takes time and effort, this is not an easy thing, but because we've generally learned this idea of trading trauma for wisdom, what happens is, is when something bad happens, at least we become better, stronger, smarter, more educated, wiser, whatever word you want to use for this notion of better. And it kind of sets up the argument that you don't really want to talk about what was bad. You want to talk about what you learned. Now, that doesn't come from the safety folks, and it doesn't come from the resilience engineering folks, because this is way too close to feelings to talk about resilience engineering. This comes from the counseling side of the house. And I actually think that's a much better way to understand this notion of just culture. But what it really is, is a very, very effective way to introduce the idea of restorative culture. So one of the things that I do, unfortunately, quite a lot, and I'm not sure how this happened, and I didn't try to do this, and I wouldn't know how to tell anybody to do this, is I work a lot with organizations that have had a bad thing that happened. Uh, people died. A catastrophic failure that ended up with people dying. And it's not, it's not fun at all. It's... It's incredibly interesting, and it's profound. And it's profound to see how an event can really impact an entire organization from the tippy-top board of directors, CEO level, all the way to the workers who do the work, the coworkers, the peers, the friends. And these events are horrible. They're horrific because bad things happen. Bad things happen in the world. And when a bad outcome happens, well, generally speaking in an organization, we want to seek the person who caused the bad thing to take place 
and then punish them for allowing a bad outcome to happen. Now, that's greatly oversimplified, but it's kind of true. That's sort of what happens. And one of the things I see is that there's a really strong urge to separate leadership from workers when a bad thing happens because the farther away I can make the bad thing happen causally, the better I am as a leader in continuing to lead the organization. And so if I can say these workers should have done this better, which is a classic counterfactual argument, always based in some kind of truth, and it does in fact explain the fatality, then what I've said is if they would be better, I can continue to lead the organization the way I was leading it before something bad happened. Now, this is super normal. You see it everywhere. And I think it's kind of hardwired into us as human beings. So it's even hard to sort of look at that and say, bad, bad senior leader, because it's kind of the way we think. And it's kind of the way we process and we make sense of the world that happens around us. Now, that's where this notion of restorative action takes place. Because it says, yeah, people have been hurt from the top to the bottom of the organization. And hurt is many things. It's not just the person who died or the family who lost the person who died, but it really is the coworkers, the other members of the organization, the supervisors, the leaders, the senior leaders, the board of directors, all of those people, their world has been rocked because a bad thing took place. And bad things happen all the time. And because their world is rocked and because a bad thing took place, they're desperately trying to figure out what to do next. And so asking the question, who's been hurt by this, and identifying at every level of the organization those pain points is actually relatively valuable. And then asking what do we need to restore the organization's ability to do high-risk work better than they've ever done it before? Well, there are answers to that question. And then the last question, that's the hard one, is, okay, who's going to do this? Who's going to lead this up? And that's often where I am present, where I get to say, here's what we learned. Here's who's been hurt. Here's what we think we should be doing. Here are the people we should be talking about. And here's the responsibility you have at every level. Because nobody is a victim. Well, let me take that back. I think the people who died clearly are the victim. But in the organization, the organization itself is not a victim of an accident. The organization is the originator of the accident. And so you have to kind of expand your horizons. And this gets a little depressing. It gets a little icky. It's kind of awful until you start to think about what the family systems people say. People trade trauma for wisdom. And so when you look at something bad happening in your organization, I guess you can ask this question. Is this a cost? That's victim language. This is going to cost us. Or is this an investment? Which is actually that restorative language. We will get better. We will actually manage problems better than we've ever managed them before because this happened. Now, that is a powerful way to think about this notion of moving forward, which sets you up at every level 
to take a more restorative approach in your responses, not just to catastrophic failure, not to fatalities or giant losses. Unfortunately, those happen. But actually, if you look at events all the way around, what you want to say is this thing took place. The payoff for having this thing taking place, which we didn't want, didn't desire, and worked really hard to ensure it wouldn't happen, but it did. The payoff for having this thing take place is that we get to come out of this better. We get to come out of this smarter. We're going to trade trauma for wisdom. Now, that's a really important idea. And foundationally, do you see where that's different than the old just culture matrix? Would another reasonable employee have done the same thing? Yes, no. If the answer is no, then punish them. If the answer is yes, then learn from it. That's super elegant because it's super seductive. It just makes the answer boom, boom, boom. But I'm not sure it makes us better. I think we have to go in around the belief that our job is to take an organization that's broken and help them become whole again. And we do that by restoring the organization. It's not a matter of justice, and yet justice is a pretty important part of this discussion. It's really a matter of restoration. Who's been hurt? What do they need? And who's responsible to make sure they get that? That idea is very important. And it's built on the backbone of the old just culture talks we had 10, 15, 20, 25 years ago. But the crazy thing is that that just culture idea hasn't really aged very well. I think it was super important, but it's not the same importance now that it once was. That the key now, especially when something bad takes place, is to think about this bad thing happened what will we get for the cost of that? What will we learn? What will we improve? What will we get better at? That is a really important way to think about moving forward. So that's the pod. It's funny, I've been thinking about this a while, and I wanted to share it with you just because this all really started from a phone call, I don't know, four or five years ago, between Sidney Decker and I, where we were talking about this very idea and how it's spinning wildly into this weird place, and it's not having the same impact it once had, this idea of just culture. And that's when we started to really look at this notion of restorative culture and why restorative culture is a much better response philosophy than almost anything else we could do. It, it, it makes a huge difference. It's, it's, well, in fact, I will tell you, just speaking entirely from where I am, that it's vital. I mean, it's, without it, it's kind of a uh, – organizations may not get better, and we need them to get better. That's vital to what we want to do and how we want to improve. So think about it. It's worth kicking around. That's pretty much the pod. Learn something new every single day. Have as much fun as you possibly can. Be good to each other. Be kind to each other. Check in on one another. And for goodness sakes, you guys, be safe. <laughs>